Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. Joining us today to discuss the 1998 Coen Brothers classic Odyssey of the Dude, The Big Lebowski, our senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez. Ahoy! <laughs> and MA student in philosophy at Queen's University, Akiva Malamet. Abiding, everyone. So the first time that we see a character in this movie, Le Big, The Big Lebowski, is a slow zoom in in the dairy aisle of the grocery store where we see Jeff Bridges' character, the dude, uh, looking at uh, cartons of half and half for his, what we will learn to be, favorite drink, White Russians. Uh, and we hear the warm, raspy southern drawl of Sam Elliott as the stranger, the narrator of the movie, say that the dude is a man for his time and place. What do you think he means by that? What about the world and the city of Los Angeles and the time that it came out in, does the dude exemplify or neatly fit into that makes him a man for his time and place? Uh, you know, um, you know, place certainly, right? This is, this is a very Los Angeles movie, although it's, it's kind of an alter in Los Angeles. Um, uh, it's, you know, as Coen Brothers movies go, it's one of the, a lot of their movies are sort of very situated in a particular American, uh, locale. And, uh, you know, this one is, is very much a movie of, of Los Angeles. Um, I think actually the only, uh, the only scenes that were not shot on location in LA were, were, uh, or non-real locations were the dream sequences and um, uh, and Lebowski's apartment, the dude's apartment is a set. Um, but otherwise it's all sort of real places in LA, um, but it's not right, sort of the LA we usually see in movies. It's not, uh, you know, the kind of the glittering Hollywood uh, LA. It's, you know, it's Pasadena, Venice Beach. Uh, it's the sort of um, less glitzy kind of slacker LA. It's the In-N-Out Burger. Um, and time, you know, I don't time. I don't know as much as place. Maybe just the sort of the the, the slacker um, cliche of of the early '90s, right? We think of the early '90s as sort of the time of the slacker, right? Um, uh, one of the right, sort of seminal movies of the of the time is Richard Linklater's movie with that title. Um, but right, so everyone in this movie is very much a kind of person you would meet in L.A. You know, you would not run into the dude and uh, and Jackie Treehorn in Manhattan. Um, exactly. So so it's it's, uh, you know, it is, it is a film that is very much of its place. I don't know about of its time to the same extent, although it was it was filmed only a few years after the time it's set in. Um, I don't know to what extent the, you know, the Gulf War backdrop really adds that much beyond you know, it, it being something for Walter to get angry about. So I think it's interesting that we're talking about the time and place stuff um, to start with, because one of the things that's always struck me about the big Lebowski and the Coen brothers movies is that to some extent, the time, the time and place that they set their movies in are important, but to some extent they're not. And I had the same feeling when watching another, one of my favorite uh, movies in Coen brothers movies, which is um, Barton Fink which is set in L.A. in the sort of 30s, 40s era of, you know, big Hollywood movies, especially the era of many, a lot of very formulaic B-movies, and it follows the career of this 
you know, erstwhile screenwriter. And in both of those cases, um, the setting isn't really about having you feel like you're really in this place. It's kind of like a mythic version of that place, whether that's the kind of like slacker Gulf War 90s vibe of the Big Lebowski or of the kind of 40s, 40s Hollywood screenwriter feeling is that it feels very real and it feels very kind of gritty and uh, not glitzy, but it also doesn't feel too specific to the time. Like the characters that you meet feel like people that you could experience in a lot of different times and places, even if they exist in a particular um, setting that they're existing in. And you're supposed to experience them, I think, partially as real people, but partially as archetypes. So there's an interesting way in which the Coen brothers in general make people that are mythological, but also very grounded that um, kind of makes the storytelling interesting because it feels like a real story, but it also feels like it's more than just a, a regular story. I also think that an important part, especially of this movie, I can't speak uh, to the other movie you were just talking about, Akiva, but I think for this movie, I even wrote down a question that says, like, does the Big Lebowski take place in our world? Or is it like kind of in like an alternate understanding of like uh, what Julian was saying, like a different part of L.A. that we don't normally see, especially in movies. Um, And I think that kind of just emphasizes the fact that the characters and their relationships to each other, as well as their personality, are a much bigger draw-in point for the audience in this movie than the actual plot or the or the place or what's going on around them um because this whole this whole essence of the dude and his dudeness um has has garnered this cult-like following and that's what people have remembered from the movie not necessarily as much as the the place or the setting or the time period um a lot of it is like the aura and the essence of the characters that really draws you in yes i mean the, the acting in this movie was phenomenal phenomenal but i think what's most important is the the characters and the relationships to each other and that's kind of how um i understood the movie i didn't think the plot was as like as breathtaking or as stunning as the um and interesting as the characters and uh their relationships um and i think that kind of speaks to why this this dude <laughs> has has this cult like following and which is interesting considering the movie at the time it came out wasn't like all that well received um there were many articles i was reading in preparation for this about how the movie was um wasn't selling out theaters they were like half full and didn't really get much attention until much later once people had seen it multiple times and began to like kind of consume more of like the intricacies of the characters and their relationships i mean i think in part right this is a movie that is almost impossible to market um yeah (laughs) i mean it's sort of in a sense, you, you could say, well, it's kind of a, a, a send up of, you know, sort of 40s noir, uh, hard boiled detective films, but it's not really. I mean, it's not centrally a parody of, uh, of those films, even though it is to some extent sort of, um, playing with that, that genre and those genre conventions. Uh, but also very much like a lot of noir films, uh, it is not really about plot, um, and, it's sort of odd. We think of, of mysteries um, as these very tightly plotted, kind of intricately uh, uh, architected uh, things. But, you know, a lot of the classic noir films, you know, plot-wise just don't make a ton. You know, the big sleep um, as a sort of protective plot doesn't 
really make a ton of sense. Um, it is, you know, normies tend to be kind of collections of scenes. Uh, and this is very much a collection of scenes. I mean, if you try to describe the plot, it just seems like a series of kind of borderline non sequiturs. Uh, yes, that actually exactly happened to me. Uh, I was telling my uh, wife that I was going to be watching this movie, The Big Lebowski, and she said, oh, I've never actually seen it. And I said, oh, it's it's really good. We should We should watch it. And she said, well, what's it about? And I said, uh, <laughs> well, um, it's about this this guy. And she said, oh, the guy with the the mustache and the sunglasses, the big Lebowski. And I said, <laughs> well, it uh, kind of, um, but not really. Uh, there's this guy. His name is the dude. And these guys break into his house and urinate on his rug. And that's about as far as I was able to get explaining the story, really having it make any sense, and I completely failed to make it a captivating thing that made her want to watch it, <laughs> even though it's really good, and I'm sure she would really enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's definitely a hard sell, like Julian said. I I think I would also have a nightmare if I were the marketing director of this campaign for this movie. So I think I, I, I mean, maybe maybe this is me like Walter trying to bring everything back to Vietnam. I'm I'm a a, a big uh, <laughs> opera nerd and and in particular a, a Wagner fan, and uh, I think in a sense the way to think about the Big Lebowski is as a uh, um, I, I think a, a probably consciously Wagnerian work, um, something that they they themselves allude to um, kind of internally. Uh, in in one of the dude's dream sequences, and but what I mean by that is, uh, what is one of the things that is most characteristic of Wagner's mature operas is his use of leitmotif. Um, that is the idea that there will be these leitmotifs, these little musical phrases um, that are associated with a character or an idea or an event um, that will recur over and over throughout the work, blend together with other themes and be transformed uh, in ways that are a kind of commentary. So you'll hear um, in the in the first opera of the Ring Cycle, um, there's the theme of uh, the, the, the Ring of Power, uh, which is this sort of evil dwarf curses love to obtain this ring, which has this insidious and sinister theme that, that uh, you know, speaks of kind of greed and treachery. Uh, and then... It transitions from the first to the second act into the sort of glorious, uh, triumphant, magisterial music of Valhalla, the Palace of the Gods. But it's basically the same music in a different key and with different instrumentation. But it, you, it's the same. It's the same, and the time is is stretched out a little bit, um, so they sound in a sense very different. But it's basically the same melody, and um, I think. Uh, you know, Lebowski is very much a a, a movie that sort of needs to be understood in uh, in, in terms of you know, this, this motivic technique. And I think this is actually something, again, they kind of nod to this in the film itself. You see um, in one of Lebowski's uh, kind of fantastically strange, uh, staged dream sequences, uh, he and Maude Lebowski uh, are um, are kind of doing this dance together. And she is in uh, Valkyrie gear. She is dressed like Brunhilde from Wagner's Ring Cycle, except not quite. She's really dressed more like the cartoonish version of Brunhilde that Elmer Fudd dresses up as 
in <laughs> the Looney Tunes What's Opera doc. So it's a kind of kind of ridiculous comical take on uh, on this sort of uh, magnum opus of Wagner. Uh, and I think that's probably deliberate because the, you know, in, in a sense, what makes the film so notoriously quotable, one of the reasons it's a cult classic is that people kind of quote it constantly. And one of the reasons it is quotable is that it is playing these games with dialogue that gets sort of passed not just that it gets repeated, um, you know, sometimes it's the same character repeating a line, but um, dialogue that gets passed from character to character, sometimes by sort of direct transmission. The, the dude says, oh, the rug really tied the room together. Um, and then Walter kind of echoes that back to them, uh, back trying to kind of rile him up to take action. Um, uh, but sometimes sort of bizarrely where, you know, a line will be repeated by a character who never heard it spoken the first time. Um, you know, the Chinaman is not the issue or, uh, you know, where's the money? Well, where's the money Lebowski is repeated sometimes by characters who heard it before and sometimes independently. Um, but you see these lines, um, sort of popping up again and again in different places, um, as these sort of motifs that recur and connect disparate scenes. Um, and you also see actually the more traditional use of leitmotif, um, to some extent uh, in the sense of a kind of theme associated with characters, um, uh, you, the the rolling along with the tumbling tumbleweeds that that is basically the first piece of music we hear and then crops up again at the end associated with Sam Elliott's uh, uh, cowboy narrator the stranger um, you know the dude has not a singular piece but the sort of soundtrack of sixties uh, and seventies classic rock um, there's the um, sort of Mancini track that plays with uh, uh, Jackie Treehorn Mucha Muchacha is associated with uh, Bunny Lebowski. Um, there's various kinds of classical music associated with the big Lebowski. Uh, it's, I think, uh, it's Mozart's Requiem in the first instance and uh, uh, something from Korngold's uh, City of uh, Dead, uh, uh, later a De Totenstadt, um, both of which, by the way, are, are uh, little messages, right? Requiem is obviously a funeral mass and then uh, Korngold's Die Totenstadt is um, basically about a widower coming to terms with the death of his wife. So both of these are pieces of music he's listening to um, that maybe suggest uh, as part of his, you know, we, we've learned eventually that the big Lebowski's whole sort of persona is this kind of elaborate fraud and put on uh, that he is not the sort of self-made man he pretends and, and titan of industry he pretends to be. Um, but that, part of this sort of performative thing is him preparing for the death of his wife, because indeed, you know, as we eventually learn, I hope no one is listening to this without having watched the big Lebowski. Um, you know, he hopes indeed that he will not recover her from this supposed kidnapping that, that we learned didn't happen, but indeed that she'll be killed and he will not have to deal with her anymore. What about the dude has allowed him to become so beloved, has given him such staying power as a character that people want to glom onto. You know, for instance, it's not just his image, but his philosophy, uh, if you could call it that, of of dudeism that has grown out of his uh, actions and thoughts and words in the film is rooted in a lot of much more um, uh, well-known history-based philosophy like zen buddhism for instance but 
what is it about his brand of dudeness, if you will, that makes him someone people want to follow or emulate? Uh, it, is it for you know, for instance, like he's based on a real person, Jeff Dowd, who is a member of the Seattle Seven, just like the dude references. He said, "Yeah, the Seattle Seven, that was me and six other guys." Um, what about the dude as a character makes him something people want to follow? Well, um, so I think this is a great question, and I think it's interesting to put, to contrast the character of the dude with other kind of 90s slacker fare that Julian <laughs> mentioned earlier. So if you think about, let's say, the character of Dante from Kevin Smith's Clerks, or you think about the various not particularly specific characters from uh, from Richard Linklater's slacker, those are all people whose profiles are not particularly... I wouldn't say not admirable, but they're not people that inspire you all that much. They're kind of people that aren't very happy with their lot in life. Um, you know, Dante's most quotable line is, I, you know, I should have stayed home today. So he's kind, he has a little bit of a whiny aesthetic, which, you know, some people could still appreciate, but it doesn't inspire all that much. And I think what separates the dude is that he has a kind of like philosophical stoicism to dealing with the kind of march of life and the kind of continuation of this slacker slacker approach to things of not kind of chasing after ambition of not trying to create great edifices or 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 seek larger narratives that has its own kind of value and it's not just kind of being fed up with the world or feeling like everything kind of sucks and it's against you in in a depressing kind of way but it has its own its own validity, its own philosophical nobility to it. So without being too grandiose, I suppose, the dude always makes me think of the the classic um book by the philosopher Albert Camus, right? The the myth of Sisyphus, which is all about how basically at the end of the day, if you're trying to make sense of your life, you kind of can't. There isn't a clear way to look at the world and say, yes, I know exactly what this is all supposed to mean, what what we're all supposed to do with this. And then to some extent, life just is sort of absurd. And it's not always easy for people to f- pull meaning out of it in a clear way. And so at the end of the book, Camus uh, invites us to imagine the character, the mythological character of Sisyphus, who's continu- continually rolling this, this boulder up a hill over and over and over again, as he's condemned by the gods, to imagine that he's a happy person, that he likes what he's doing. And I kind of think about that when I think about the dude. The dude is sort of trying to say that at a certain point, um, you should be a little bit less obsessive about trying to chase after any one particular thing because you need to recognize that within all of this, there is um, a limitation about how much sort of narrative or meaning you can carve out of all of this. And you kind of just have to get along with it, right? That's why the classic phrase, the dude abides. Um, I think resonates very powerfully for people because it's like you kind of just, you know, you, you just kind of go along to get along. You keep on trucking, which is a famous 60s phrase that was on a lot of posters and stuff. You kind of just continue on in your life and you find a way to make that all kind of work for you without trying to 
maybe pretend so much that it's about something bigger. And I think you kind of see an interesting contrast between the character of the dude and a lot of other characters who seem to have kind of pretensions towards something larger or a notion that what things should be about is something larger and try to portray themselves as being part of that, whether that's Mr. Lebowski's pretending that he's actually a very important, successful businessman or Walter's commitment to or or pseudo commitment i suppose to the to the details of the jewish faith um and you know the and and walter's kind of insistence that you have to have an ideology right so walter has that famous phrase like you know say what you will about the nazis at least they had an ethos <laughs> and I, I think the dude kind of calls that out in a kind of like ironic gonna, commentary like what there's is like the a million a million this? big lebowski fans are like going oh god no they gotta get the line exactly right it's say yeah. what you will about the tenets of national socialism at least yeah. it's an ethos <laughs> <laughs> yeah i apologize to all the to all the line obsessives out there i'm not always good at, at the quotables I, i'm the, part of the contributors to the people who are like you know luke i am not your father screw-ups and all the various other uh, you know, yes. mis- missed lines i'm definitely one of those people um, but yeah, like I, th- I think there's a kind of contrast between like the, we need to create a narrative for things and we need to have something, things mean something very specific. And I have to be this person, um, v- versus the dude's version of slackerism, which is like, sometimes it's okay to be a little bit low key about all of this and not try to construct a whole identity that at least through the, through the lens of the movie, you find out that a lot of them are, are kind of hollow inside at least mr lebowski's are mr lebowski's is the nihilists are right it's all a kind of act um they're all right. performing. it's not it's not fair yeah, yeah. who's the nihilist now yeah. <laughs> well and bunny bunny lebowski right turns out to be right actually a layered uh actually her name is fawn knutson but before that and then somewhere in between she was bunny lajoya all right walter is you know in a sense i guess you're sincere about it but I, you know, essentially Polish Catholic, but now, you know, sort of clinging to this Jewish identity, seemingly sort of as a remnant of his uh, 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 failed marriage that he can't quite let go of. Um, in a way, right, the dude is the only central character who is, in a sense, authentic, who is uh, Jackie Treehorn, um, right, is 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 a, a pornographer, but he says, oh, no, I deal in publishing and, and political <laughs> advocacy and, uh, you know, new technologies and i'm a pioneer and he's kind of got this this very tim leary-ish sort of pose mm-hmm. um and you know which the dude sort of punctures with oh well which one is log jamming um the dude <laughs> is sort of the only major character in this who is more or less what he appears to be uh, what he appears to be may not be all that you know well, he's, <laughs> he's very stoned kind of slacker guy yeah. he's uh, who, who likes bowling yeah but right but 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 everyone else is basically a performance, you know, Maud Lebowski is this you know, poses as bohemian artist, but of course she's a wealthy heiress and she's got this like ridiculous, you know, sort of put on quasi European Swiss finishing schools. I don't know yeah. what that accent is. <laughs> and in the end, she just um, wants to be a mom anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he is in that sense totally authentic, but he's also this sort of weird, refreshing thing in that he is, right, the setup, again, the the the, the structure of this thing is um, a kind of pastiche of 40s hard-boiled noir detective stories, but he's almost sort of the, the opposite of um, 
of a kind of hard-boiled protagonist, right? He is not a man of action uh, by any means. He essentially, everything he does is sort of at the instigation of other people. Uh, you know, other people have these grand ambitions to get the million dollars and, uh, and, and be rich. And all the dude ever wanted was his rug back. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but, but in a way, right, this is a very unusual for, for a Hollywood protagonist, right? We expect the protagonist to be, uh, active and, uh, often in a, in a, a story like this, uh, you know, someone who's potentially violent and ready with their fists. Uh, and, you know, we don't really ever see the dude, um, you know, do anything particularly violent or aggressive. And he's, he's sort of kind. He's when, when the big Lebowski, who's sort of the architect of, of a lot of the sort of misery they've been put through is falls out of his chair at the end. Walter is determined to expose him as a fraud. Um, you know, he says, no, come on guy, you know, man, let me, let me help, help me, help me put him back in his chair. Um, so yeah, he's this sort of interesting Zen hero, uh, who, who, um, in a sense, doesn't want to do anything, <laughs> uh, much of anything, um, you know, other than, you know, to be left alone, maybe to have his rug back, um, <laughs> but is, is kind of drifting along and yet things sort of work out for him in the end. Well, I also think it's interesting that you talked about how the dude is a different type of like protagonist than we're used to seeing. He's certainly not the, certainly not the hero, certainly not. Well, I mean, he could be a hero. Like you said, a Zen hero. He's certainly not someone who's like, uh, going up and creating the big action points. If anything, he's kind of like the moral reason. Like he's like the one who's like sitting back and being like, this isn't a big deal. Like I like he's very, very nonchalant. And I, I think it's interesting that. Um, kind of on a surface, on a surface level, I think most people probably re- want to relate the most to the dude, but they know that they don't act like him, if that makes any sense. So I, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, wow, like, I wish I could be a little bit more like this because I'm, as Lange knows, I'm very type A. So if like, I let things roll off my back <laughs> as much as the dude was, maybe I could like, not be so concerned about the little things that don't matter in life, which is like kind of that aura that the dude gives off. Um, but I think in part, at least for me, when I was watching it, my, my draw to the dude as the character was more so that like, there are some good things that like a lot of people could learn from his type of personality. Mind you, all of us don't need to live our lives that way. Uh, but, um, I think it was just interesting how, how laid back he was and the fact that, it, it wasn't your normal, your typical, like, strong, and I say that kind of in quotes because I don't mean, like, physically strong, like, you're a strong presence of a of a protagonist as, uh, as we typically see. And I think that's part of the reason, like, wh- while I was reading up for this, um, for this podcast, part of the reason that a lot of people don't get or, like, I saw so many people saying they don't get or they don't understand the Big Lebowski. And I think it's because there's not, there's not that, like, strong plot with a the protagonist we're all used to seeing and i think it's a lot a lot harder for people to understand the purpose of this movie if they don't understand the nuances of the characters like the dude which is he's obviously integral to the movie yeah the dude really does not act 
as someone that drives the story forward in the movie, interestingly enough. It's all people like Walter who tell him what right. he needs to do <laughs> or, uh, you know, the other Lebowski um, that tell him what he needs to do. You know, you need to go and, and save Bunny. You need to do this handoff. And then Walter, who says, no, we need to try and get the whole million, not just the 20,000, will throw the ringer out with my dirty underwear that it's filled with instead of the actual money. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's an interesting uh, uh, potential, con- I mean, there's a kind of potentially sort of, I guess, Christian allegorical reading of, uh, of the big Lebowski, right? I mean, Walter is, uh, is very much old Testament, not just in his, you know, propensity yeah. for quoting Jewish ages. His approach, but, yeah, uh, true. Yeah, he is yeah. a vengeful, you know, vengeance is mine, saith Walter. Um, he is, he is very interested in, uh, you know, uh, in, in punishing the, the wicked and, uh, and seeing justice done. And the dude who we do occasionally see kind of, Right, sort of shrugging in a, in something that is vaguely evocative of a kind of a crucifix pose um, is much more sort of turn the other cheek, uh, uh, love your enemy, uh, you know, forgive, uh, uh, don't cling, you know, don't uh, cling to material things. Um, I, I think that's almost certainly a kind of intentional uh, contrast there. Although I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't take it too seriously as a kind of. Um, well, I think also there's a, a visual comparison that you could definitely see pretty easily with the style of his hair and his goatee. That's definitely one of the more um, modern depictions uh, of Jesus that you might be able to see some places. Uh, so I, I would be able to see that for sure. Plus the, the whole bathrobe thing gives him a kind of oh, you yeah. know, <laughs> Middle Eastern prophet aesthetic. Overall, yeah, I think the Christian um, contrast there that you raised, Julian, is is really strong. Um, and I think like a lot of the, you know, like I mentioned before, a lot of these characters have a kind of um, like the this what goes back to the whole question of like what is the point of this movie, right? Where I don't get this movie, yeah. which is that it's more about themes, right? It's more about kind of ideas that they the that the Coens want to percolate in your mind, like. What is the point of trying to find Bunny Lebowski? Like, why, why does this matter? Or, you know, why do we want, um, you know, this money to be saved or not? And there's, I think there's a kind of like, it's not, there's not even like the message that just, oh, actually the dude is right and you shouldn't care about these things, but there's just a kind of question being raised, like, when you're, when we go after things in life, what are we trying to get out of them? Um, and when, and when we do them, like, are we looking for them in the same way that other people are? Like, so, right. So the dude decides to start looking for, um, Bunny Lebowski because in the end he decides that she might actually be a danger, right? And so he decides to sort of sacrifice his calmness, um, Christ-like, I suppose, for that end. Um, and then there's that, um, other private investigator who thinks that the dude actually is a sincere private investigator. So the idea right. is, right. Del- that, like, Delfino. They, yeah, Delfino. Yes. He's like, you're a private dick, just like me. Um, a brother Seamus. Like, yeah, a brother, brother, brother Seamus. Yeah. yeah. And he's like a perfect stereotype of, you know, yeah, like a character in the big sleep or something. Um, and it's like, they're both looking for the same thing. They're both looking for Bunny Labasti, but the, the dude is doing it for like, in a totally different um, way and style than the other guy is, even though they're both doing the same thing. Um, right. And Delfino, and, right, keeps trying yeah. to kind of push him into 
the right the 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 archetype of the noir hard-boiled hero uh you know in bed with everybody playing one side against the other fantastic work he says you know you know man i'm just trying to help my lady friend conceive you know (laughs) this got me thinking about one of the other things that we've sort of danced around here which is the Coen Brothers with this movie sort of raise questions with the audience that sort of make them say, well, what is the point? What is the end game? Where is this all leading to? And and who's pulling the strings behind all this? And a very sort of surface level of the reading when you, especially when you're not finished with it, I think would lead you to the conclusion that there might not be any meaning behind it. It's absurd. It is, um, you know, a lot of people going about things for selfish ends, but there's no grand plan or it, it seems like there may not be a, like a real dramatic structure to the entire movie. Um, and so it makes you sort of believe in a postmodern reading partially way through the movie um that there is no meaning uh and you could very easily walk away with that but then it sort of turns it on its head uh when you come to the end with the nihilists who embody this very much like accepting the lack of meaning and like emphatically supporting it and then saying well really those people are cowardly and that they've been had by someone else who's you know pushing them in a direction for their own means and that really it's about making your own meaning and making something significant for yourself which is i i think i did not get the first time i watched this movie i didn't get a lot of it the first time i watched this movie when i was a much younger person but upon this watch i really appreciated that it it has i wouldn't say an optimistic quality to it but i i liked that it rejected nihilism to an extent um just for me personally i thought it made it more interesting that way i think the nihilists are some some of my favorites because of how in the end how derpy right the movie gets oh, about, yeah. <laughs> about their supposed like intensity like you know we believe in nothing you know Nabowski. um but like and then they end up being very whiny and what what I love about that is the way the movie kind of just keeps dumping on the cynicism that it previously revealed, right? So um, the so our, at the end of the end of the movie, right when Donnie dies, another spoiler for for people who <laughs> decided to unwisely, <laughs> yeah, twenty two years later, mm-hmm. um, when Donnie dies, right, and then they re- then they refuse to buy into the to the industry um, of buying this like you know container thing and they they use the uh-huh. Folgers coffee right and then the Folgers <laughs> coffee then the wind blows their sincere ceremony of Donnie's ashes in their faces right so in the yes. end it's kind of like well none of the efforts um here are really so clear like what was that about and what was your lack of caring about this other person's caring about right so it's like oh we see through your thing but we have our own thing but then kind of nature makes it so that your great ceremony isn't so great either. Um, and it kind of just keeps doubling back on this sort of lack of, of center. Um, so you don't have any like genuine moments, um, which I guess, I don't know. You, I guess you could say has a genuineness in itself. Oh, I think, I think you do get a, you do get a genuine moment right after that when, right. uh, you know, finally kind of the dude, Right, sort of, and it's kind of a hilarious sort of thing about their inter- interactions is that, um, 
the times that you know the dude ends up screaming or actually kind of angry about something it's usually um in some exchange with walter where walter who is the the kind of angry <laughs> bombastic one has pushed him to the point where the dude actually gets angry and then, and then as walter points out you know he ends up being the one who's calmer than you are dude um and <laughs> you know we have in, the, in in that scene this moment where finally you know the dude has had enough of of walter's sort of constantly making everything about Vietnam and sort of turning the, the, the this sort of solemn funeral into a travesty. And he, uh, and he sort of starts finally screaming, why is everything about Vietnam with you? And, uh, <laughs> and Walter just, just hugs him. Uh, and they, and they have this kind of very sort of quiet, uh, a tender moment. Um, right, right. In the cold light of day, you get that, that, oddly tender moment between the two of them and just like i was saying a little bit before it doubles back on that cynical uh uh view and it sort of ruins what was a beautiful moment uh, oddly even if walter kind of you know manipulates it to to make it something sort of about him uh it, it kind of ruins that for you but then it also then doubles back on it again and gives you a bit of this tender beautiful moment that sort of showcases the very odd sort of mysterious friendship between walter and the dude that i still don't entirely understand but then again i don't understand how i'm friends with a, a lot of different people that are very different from me and i still cherish those friendships dearly so yeah, I mean, there's a, it, I don't, I wouldn't say like, you know, the movie just kind of dumps on everything in the end, but it kind of has this thing where it's cynical, but genuine at the same time, which is what makes it, I think, also endure. Um, it doesn't feel like it's just, it's just purely cynical, which makes you less inclined to appreciate over time as if, if you don't only want to feel cynical. Um, when that happens, you know, um, so, so it, it creates this, this really nice kind of mix of emotions where in the end, it's sort of all of this. We can, you can kind of poke holes in everyone's relationships, right? So Walter clearly has immense PTSD from Vietnam and all his relationships has failed and he's very angry, but he's also very calm and caring. And the dude kind of seemingly doesn't care about things, but also gets intense when it feel, he feels like certain core values, these like 60s values of peace, love are being threatened. So you have these kinds of nuanced characters where they, 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 they have a lot of kind of deep, enduring flaws, but you appreciate them anyway. Um, which I think also casts pokes at the kind of Hollywood thing of like, the good people are good and the bad people are bad kind of thing. And it, it has that sort of anti-hero trope, but not in the sense that like, you appreciate someone who's basically a bad person. Right, which is what happens in like the Sopranos of the Wire. It's more like they're not really good or bad people. They just have flaws. Um, and you sort of live with them in their humanness. Um, instead of them being either good or bad or a bad person that you empathize with. I think also, you know, in terms of the, the, the difficulty of, of sort of processing is I think this does go back to the kind of, you know, motivic nature of, uh, of the film, right? This is notoriously a film that, um, people maybe think it's fine the first time they see it. Um, they like it a little better the second time. And then the fifth time they see it, they really love it. Um, and you know, the people who are, the people who are really crazy about this movie, well, I think will often tell you, and it's certainly true of me. Um, again, you know, it, it was fine when they first saw it, but they didn't really love it until, you know, the third, fourth, fifth viewing. Um, and I think that's, 
you know, and again, partly because the the nature of a sort of Wagnerian work like this is that um, it's it's it sort of becomes it's sort of like a like one of those magic eye pictures. It sort of becomes uh, clear only in sort of soft focus when you can see the whole uh, sort of at once. So if you, you know, a motif is introduced in a in a Wagner opera. Um, you may not understand the full significance of that motif until it's elaborated later and you understand its connections to um, all the other themes. I mean, I've heard The Ring hundreds of times. I've seen it performed five or six times. Uh, and I still often am hearing new things, hearing new um, you know, relationships between themes or recognizing that actually this, this theme is... Um, is a transformation of another one that I hadn't, and I hadn't recognized it previously. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's certainly again, in, in sort of strict narrative plot terms, it's, it's a little hard to get uh, a grip on. Um, it's when you've seen multiple viewings and you recognize uh, this sort of internal hypertext kind of nature of it, that, um, uh, that you know, sort of the individual moments uh, uh, I guess get their full significance. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not really about the the story overall, right? It's about the many stories that you get within the story based on the different, right? Like Natalie mentioned earlier, it's very character driven, and ultimately you pick up on those themes, you know, the same way that you would in in a musical score through different instruments, the different characters that embody particular themes, and there's sort of the different, you know, there's a violin in Lebowski or, or or the dude, or whatever, and they they sort of pull out the different the different emotional textures that you want that you want to raise, and so it's not even about it's really about understanding these different types of life experiences or types of ways of viewing the world. So you know, I, it's probably harder to get more postmodern as a movie than this, um, unless you just wanted to do like you know the weirdest collection of clips from any random thing and just mash them together and pretend it's a story um but it, it has that that kind of focus on looking at these characters and what they're going through to then appreciate a certain experience of life rather than it being about the thing that they're pursuing per se it's more about them relating to any particular situation that they're in whether that's because they're feeling genuine about it or because they're feeling cynical or because they're happy about it or think they think it's funny or they're angry or, or whatever that is. So part of it too is what getting at that question we've been talking about pretty much throughout this entire recording is like the point of the movie are people having a tough time understanding from my, from my perspective, it was interesting because I had seen this movie when I was, when I was younger. Um, it had been about like maybe five or six years ago, the last time I've seen this movie. And I think this time when I watch, I went in with a very different lens, not only knowing that I was going to, do this podcast. So I wanted to have like some depth to the conversation, but also that, um, I think once you get older, you, you may view this film very differently based on your own life experiences, like Akiva was just talking about. And I don't think perhaps a younger audience has a knife, uh, enough life experience in order to really, for some of these character personalities and, uh, relationships to really resonate, uh, with a young audience. So I, I imagine that a, a younger adult audience might not, might not understand the film as much as an older audience, uh, partially just because like that was my own personal experience. Cause the first time I watched it, I, 
I very much was in the camp of like, okay, that movie was like kind of funny, but like, why did I just watch? Like, why did I just waste my time watching that movie? Um, but this time around, I definitely thought it had the conversation was much more in depth and like. Julian was saying the hypertext or like what I kind of gleaned from the nuances between the characters was much, much different than the first time I had viewed it. Um, I also wanted to put in there that uh, the first time I had viewed it, I thought it was the, my favorite part was when the ferret went into the bathtub because I had a, I used to have a ferret and I used to walk it around on a leash. Um, so that was the only, the only scene I was mesmerized by <laughs> the first time I watched it. Um, <laughs> I no longer have a ferret. So I, I uh, didn't think the same way this time around but um i think the way you view the movie definitely um is definitely dependent and this is probably true of most movies too on your own personal experience and your ability to relate to the characters have you had experiences that the characters are going through well it's also incidentally the the ferret scene is like the first uh instance of uh the movie's sort of fascination with um kind of uh, misidentification and and sort of oh, false yeah. identities, right? He, uh, the the nihilists come in and he says, "Nice marmot." And of course, it's yeah. not a marmot; it's a ferret. Um, which is right the, the the first in a long series of um, uh, things that that are not what they are initially identified as. Mm-hmm. Well, that's funny because I I remember the first time I was I was watching this, I was watching with a group of friends, and I like screamed out, "I was like, that's not a marmot, that's a." <laughs> it's like um but there there is a lot of that like questioning of uh what isn't re- isn't real throughout this movie and what isn't isn't important um cer- certainly goes along with um false identification that happens throughout throughout the film and also we get this, this this kind of fantastic moment in in the the funeral scene we just mentioned which is this little throwaway thing where uh walter throws out um donnie's uh, right, Donnie's life as a surfer. That his his big thing was uh, he was an ardent surfer, which of course you know is, is played by Steve Buscemi. He's mm-hmm. about as far from kind of the the, the archetype of uh, a California surfer guy as you could possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> but so it's only only at the end here uh, at his funeral that we learn. Oh, this guy had this whole this who who was basically quiet throughout, and whose role was to be um, sort of confused and not really understand what was going on. Um, had this sort of rich other life that that is never shown on screen. Just in a sense, right? I think the the um, the dream sequences are uh, you know a kind of microcosm of the entire movie, right? They're this sort of highly right. concentrated version of what the movie as a whole is doing, which is this sort of insane pastiche of um, you know stuff that's actually happening to the dude. Um, you know, very heavy-handed Freudian symbolism and kind of castration anxiety. Um, <laughs> you know, bits of of uh, of pop culture. He you know ropes in uh, you know uh, Wagner as filtered probably through Looney Tunes and Saddam Hussein uh, from the Iraq War being in the news uh, and these sort of pop soundtracks. Uh, so. Um, you know, there's this kind of hyper concentrated version of what the movie as a whole is doing, um, which is, um, you know, throwing together these sort of incredibly disparate elements um, that maybe seem random and 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 incongruous uh, into this actually kind of elaborately staged um, synthesis. There's somehow it all works together. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great point. And like, it really sort of ties together the way in which the movie, as you said, is about themes and also about symbols, right? 
So yeah. it's about certain visual cues that kind of keep coming back about certain psychological um, drives and anxieties that, well, certainly the dude has, but also we as the audience have when we're trying to, um, either when we're following the narrative or when we're going through an experience, whether those are, you know, fear of some kind of violent situation or a sexual one or whatever. And you kind of, through all of that, you just have the, you know, the physical, you know, the dude um, within the, the sequence kind of just being tossed and thrown around. So he's within this environment and then eventually he is on the back of the bowling ball and he's kind or in really actually is the bowling ball and <laughs> is, is, is kind of smashing into the, the things and he kind of loses his co his coherence and cohesion, his like perspective on where he is and what's happening. Um, which is sort of like a larger commentary on, on being disoriented, right. Or, or it's like a very literal disorientation. Um, and I think it's about like how, about like the, the difficulty of trying to like look at different things that are happening in front of you and tie them together, different things either in your life or just as you experience something like you see this, this person in front of you and that person, and you know, these, the walls are this color and whatever. And when that all ties together, you kind of say, well, what was that experience? Um, and what, what was this thing that we, that I'm, I've been trying to, to get towards, um, and I guess, I know for me, like what I, this is sort of something I also, you think about when you think about dreams in general, right? They're a way of processing information. So, you know, one of the standard, like, um, like neuro explanations for why we have dreams is that it's like a kind of screensaver for just processing all the random pieces of information that have gone through our, our brains over a period of time and kind of sorting it into files and whatever. Um, and sort of the insanity of that is our brain trying to figure out what, all of this actually means and how we're supposed to use all of this information. And so I guess like the dream sequence is in a way is a guide for the movie because it's, it's trying to say, well, what you really want to do is take all these different experiences and then ask yourself what they're supposed to mean for you and not like, what are they supposed to mean for the characters or for the movie as a whole, but how you can get something out of different, different scenes and different interactions. Really and, tied the room together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It does. It's the ru- it's the it's the it's it's proverbial the rug. rug of the movie. It's the rug of the movie. <laughs> and now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other wonderful media that we've been enjoying during this time of being locked in. This is locked in. So, Akiva, Julian, what other stuff have you been enjoying while you've been at home? Uh, let's see. Uh, I am reading uh, the new David Mitchell novel, Utopia Avenue, and um, uh, Tamsin Muir's Harrow the Ninth, uh, which is the sequel to uh, her uh, very much hailed uh, Gideon the Ninth. Uh, and this is a sort of weird space opera sci-fi involving uh, a civilization that's sort of centered on necromantic magic. Um, uh, and the David Mitchell, the David Mitchell novel, Utopia Avenue, it follows a band, uh, that forms in Britain in the late sixties. Um, but is, um, is also sort of part of his weird, uh, sort of mythology spanning his many books of different genres, um, that kind of connects 
the books like uh, Cloud Atlas and The Bone Clocks. Uh, let's see. I recently listened to uh, the Audible adaptation of Neil Gaiman's graphic novel Sandman, uh, starring uh, uh, James McAvoy as the uh, as the title character. Uh, and slightly more seriously, I'm reading uh, uh, Thomas Ridd's book Active Measures: uh, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare. Uh, and let's see. I don't know, movie, watching, I, I've been kind of rewatching Deep Space Nine just to sort of um, pandemic comfort food, just because there's a whole lot of it uh, to, <laughs> yeah. to go through. Uh, and games, I've been playing uh, the, uh, 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 the RPG Disco Elysium, uh, which is uh, a, a kind of just bizarre uh, um, detective story, but set in this sort of strange uh, a political environment. Uh, it's, it's a little, it's uh, to me very reminiscent of, uh, of China Meevil's work or, um, uh, or, or, or to some extent Warren Ellis, the, the, the comics writer. Uh, and I've also been playing, uh, the last of us two, which is a, a kind of post-apocalypse zombie, um, revenge story, uh, by Naughty Dog. The last, the first last of us was, was a sort of very celebrated, uh, a cinematic game from the studio Naughty Dog. Uh, I don't know if I've oh a movie. I guess I I I I, I and I watched Hamilton like everyone else, uh, yeah. <laughs> having seen it in having seen it in, in New York maybe five years ago. I, I I got to watch it again and like everyone else, get all the songs stuck in my head yet again. Um, yeah, <laughs> as, as though it's it's 2016 again. <laughs> so coincidentally, it's funny that Julian mentioned DS9 because I've also been going into the like kind of pod- pandemic comfort food rabbit hole and I've been rewatching a lot of DS9 um, and just kind of restruck by how fabulous Avery Brooks is as an actor, period. Um, and how underrated I think he is because it's Star Trek and everyone kind of waves off Star Trek um, as being, you know, lesser than, which I take great umbrage at as a, as a confirmed Trekkie. Um, and let me see what else. Um, oh, I've been watching, um, people have been, my various nerd friends have been telling me that I should try and, and be nicer to anime and give it a, a stronger look. So I've been watching Devilman Crybaby on Netflix, which I can say is pretty good so far. Um, and is this really interesting story about, um, this guy who has to kind of, Im- take in and control this demon within him in order to get rid of all these demons that are inhabiting uh, the bodies of other people that are trying to eat up and, you know, kill people and destroy them. And he has to kind of, he becomes this hybrid between a man and a, and a demon. And he has to kind of keep these, this demon self under control. So it has all these kind of interesting psychological subtext stuff. Um, I also, Rewatched. Uh, well, first, first I watched the 2019 version of Hellboy, which I'm sorry to say was terrible. Um, and then <laughs> as a palate cleanser, I rewatched the Guillermo del Toro versions, uh, the first and second movies, which still hold up and everyone should go see because Hellboy is great and Guillermo del Toro is, you know, the Stanley Kubrick of our generation. I'm just going out and say that. Um, and let me see what else. Oh, um, I'm reading a couple of books. I'm reading, I'm a big fan of the comedian Doug Stanhope, um, who some people may have, may refer to. He's a kind of very acerbic, um, pretty kind of body dirty comic, but he makes kind of very cynical, cutting kind of commentary about just people and their place in the world and relationships. Anyway, he's got like a memoir called Digging Up Mother, 
which kind of starts with the death of his mother and the way that she died. It's amazing and very dark and weird, but well worth it. Um, I guess a bit like The Big Lebowski. Um, and, and is really worth reading. And it's kind of his story of growing up in this very dysfunctional family in this hick town in, um, I want to say Massachusetts or Connecticut. I forget. Uh, Massachusetts, right? Cause he's from Worcester and him then traveling around and, you know, becoming like, you know, a crank telemarketer and doing all kinds of sleazy stuff in Vegas and LA until he became a stand up comedian and kind of his story of, finding himself in life. Um, and it's very funny and weird and worth reading. Uh, and I'm also reading because there are, so I'm a huge fan of the sci-fi writer, Neil Stevenson. And there are some books that I've read and some books that I haven't. And for some reason I have overlooked getting around to reading the diamond age, um, which I agree is bad of me um, for all those nerds out there. So I'm reading it now. Um, and it is a fabulous, fabulous book um, that certainly already you know, matches his other great stuff like, you know, Anathem or Snow Crash or any of that other stuff. Um, and it's worth reading is another kind of cyberpunk classic, you know, neurofuture person finding their way situation of this, you know, of this young girl. So, you know, female centered, which is nice for a change also in sci-fi. Um, and is, yeah, that's, those are all things that people should check out. Great. So I have been reading a lot more since I've been inside at my place a lot more. Um, but I went back and I read The Haunting of Hill House. Um, I had already seen the Netflix show that they did on it. I wasn't a huge fan of the book. I know it's more of like an American classic. It's by Shirley Jackson. Um, I actually thought the show was more entertaining than the book, which I would rarely ever say about um, a book that also has a show and or movie. Um, I also read a book, a fiction novel recently called After Anna. Um, this is more of like a um, young adult mystery mystery novel um, about a young girl who like reconnects with her family after um, she was given up by her mother. Uh, that book is very good. And now I, I just started reading In Cold Blood. Um, I am literally two pages in, so I can't tell you how, if the book is good or not yet. Um, but on the, uh, on the movies and uh, TV side, I have finally started The Man in the High Castle. I have had countless people tell me that it would be something I really enjoy. Um, I'm about four episodes in and I'm not, completely sold on it yet but i do find it entertaining um it for those of you who haven't heard about it it's a amazon prime show it is an alternate an alternate reality had the nazis won world war ii um so right now we're presented with america that's like half owned by um the third reich and then there's like a disputed area that's like in the midwest and then like the west coast and california is all um occupied by the Japanese. Um, so there's this interesting, like, um, this interesting dynamic between the Japanese and the third Reich. And then there's all of the Americans are those who technically were Americans during world war two, um, who are trying to create like a, um, like a rebel group in disguise and how they communicate with each other. Um, so that so far has been uh, really interesting. And I, I think there are four seasons, so I have a lot to go left in that show. Um, other than that, I, I don't do a lot of uh, game playing other than like Monopoly or Uno. Um, I've been in some intense games of Monopoly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of what I've been up to. 
one of the things that I have been looking forward to getting into, mostly because there is a HBO adaptation that has just begun, uh, is Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country, a book that I have had my eye on for a long time and now have a very good excuse to finally break open. It is a... Uh, it's not an homage, I would say, or a send-up even, but it is a attempt to tell a sort of cosmic horror-type story set in the American South that also confronts H.P. Lovecraft's extreme racism uh, that is embedded in his work that you can't really separate from the stories that he tells and the metaphors that he uses. Um, so it's it's a very interesting sort of cosmic horror, Lovecraftian, you could say, um, uh, sort of story that confronts racism almost blatantly as, as a villain in the story, from what I understand. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to reading that and for also watching the HBO series that should be premiering, or I think just premiered, um, Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country. Uh, one of the other things that my wife and I have been watching a lot of is a series and a, uh, a cinematic and literary universe that she very much uh, loves is uh, the world of the Moomins. Uh, the Moomins <laughs> are a family of trolls that live in Moomin what? Valley. Uh, the main character is Moomin. Uh, his mother, Moomin Mama, and his father, Moomin Papa, uh, live with him. So it's like European Smurfs. These, the Smurf, Smurfs are European. Smurfs are Belgian. And they look kind of like hippos. Uh, but really, they're they're like fluffy white trolls, and it is uh, it was a novel that was turned into a comic strip, and then it was a, a TV show, and they actually have just started uh, producing a sort of 3D animation series, uh, I think called Moomin World, that has like an all star voice oh, cast uh, on it, and uh, um, yes, it's it it is similar to Smurfs in that way. Um, but uh, it's actually Finnish, not Belgian. So a little bit different there. <laughs> um, but it's it's a lot of fun and it has some like it has that fun sort of European tinge to the children's stories to where in like an American uh, like kids show, uh, even for a country that loves its guns as much as we do. Um, yeah. Like, you wouldn't see uh, uh, someone confront a villain and just point a musket at them. But that happens in the Moomins when Moomin Papa <laughs> has to uh, confront the Groak, which is the uh, personification of depression and oh uh, leaves a trail of ice wherever she goes. It's fascinating and fun and weird. And I highly recommend the Moomins by Tuve Janssen. Um I also have been interested uh, specifically because the Moomins reminded me of it because Matt Berry is one <laughs> of the voices on the new uh, series that they're producing. Uh, Matt Berry got me thinking about what we do in the shadows and uh, the IT crowd. Uh, and I specifically went back to one of his very first things he was ever in, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which uh, was produced by a lot of the people that are in that sort of scene with the the mighty Boosh and IT crowd. Um and it's just a hilarious, weird 80s horror soap opera parody show that is so strange and is wacky. I love it. I highly recommend it. 
And the last thing for all of our podcast listeners out there is one of the best podcasts I have ever heard and definitely within the past couple of years is one of my favorites. It is Richard's Famous Food Podcast. It is produced by Richard Parks III. It is a podcast about food and food culture, but it is like a weird adult swim cartoon for your ears in its wackiness. It's not, you know, uh, you know, off color or dirty or anything like that, but it is just strange and musical and <laughs> all these different voices done by this one guy and he writes these amazing songs but he's also a james beard award nominated food writer um so the stories are all about uh, like bone broth and it talks about like the origins of pho and the, the culture behind it the tradition of hiding a christmas pickle in a christmas tree um we do that things like that that things that are just so weird and strange that i would never think oh i want to listen to a podcast about that it makes it so compelling and funny that you you just have to listen to it and it, it's really great i think it's weird it's not for everybody but i think it'll surprise you um so i highly recommend richard's famous food podcast thanks for listening what do you think the meaning of the big lebowski is well, you know, that's just your opinion, man. But we want to hear it. Make sure to share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>